welcome to the Rugby Bits podcast. We are having a look back at the opening round of the 2024 Six Nations, which was an absolute cracker. Um, but yeah, in, in true Rugby Bits fashion, Tala's trying to sort out his technical issues. I think Cooks has sent him on his, his demons and his gremlins. So Tala will be joining us in a little bit, but I am joined by Cooks. Hi, my man. Hey, Sharky. How are you doing? Yeah, Tala's going to go cleans his uh, assholeness off the <laughs> off him so before he joins the the podcast but um yeah all good things very good weekend very chilled um how was yours yeah it was good thanks for a bit of ruggers but i mean let's go back to tala he just had to dig at me i mean he nearly blew my eardrums with whatever happened on his side and then he told me to calm down i think he's starting to to make enemies all over the show the thing is like for the listeners if you guys don't know like obviously we always we always chat before we jump on these things and Tyler's got this knack of just, I don't know what happens to his speaker or his mic, but he just basically attacks us and in our ears. And it, it, it happens once every, what, what, once every four podcasts. So it's like, uh, at least, you know, we're safe now for, until pretty much the end of the six nations, hopefully. I hope because I got my, my headphones nice and deep in my ear and I'm hearing you guys nice and loud. And Tyler comes with that death static and, game over oh, so. it is it is horrific hopefully when he comes back here his his death static won't um won't, won't destroy our ears again yeah and talking about members of the rugby bits um jared's been awol what's uh he can't be working that hard yeah jared is um jared's actually becoming a celebrity now like you know you know it was it was, it was, a, it was a role that i accepted as you know as a rugby bits crew but like jared is as has has taken that role and ran away with it now. You know, he's 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 he's, he's a Twitter is a, a Twitter man through and through now. He's just is X, and he's got to provide for his audience. So now, you know what I mean. So like we we still he still comes in the group and just throws haymakers from time to time without even saying hi. But um, Sharky, once you see the bright lights and and Jared has seen them, so now we got to <laughs> check with his manager, check his schedule. You know, he's not is he not in a different country? You know, covering international games. Which which premiership games are doing this weekend? I mean, he's become a rock star now. Oh no, tell me about it. Well, to the guys at Planet Rugby, please can you release Jared just for a little bit? I know he's building up his own <laughs> personal profile, which benefits everybody, but we'd love to have him back on the podcast. Jared, if you are listening, we're thinking of you, my man. Strongs. Right. On to the, the main topic of the day, which is rugby. Um Dwayne Vermeulen. What an what an awesome, controversial but awesome potential appointment of him, sort of sitting under Rassi Rasmus's wing as the director of rugby. Eh, Cooks. Yeah, I, I don't know. What, I don't know what his title is. I mean, is it assistant coach? Is it assistant director of rugby? Well, there is no director of rugby essentially. I mean, Rassi's sort of vacated the role to coach, and then now, uh, but they're not replacing him in that capacity. So. Um, so it's a it's a weird space because I mean obviously Dwayne and Rusty will sure be sharing duties. Um, sort of, I think it's very similar to how Jacques and 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 Rusty to operate. I think Dwayne obviously doing going around the unions, obviously helping coaching out. I think something that Jacques and Rusty did used to do. So I mean obviously we, we saw Dwayne obviously sitting in the coach's box during the World Cup game, and we, we we know how involved Dwayne has been in the setup on and off the field. It's an interesting it's an interesting one. I mean obviously it calls for big debates. Um. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting one, Sharky, because you know I I think in this in this case, I mean both, I mean two things can be true: the fact that you know some guys do skip the line, you know, some guys like you know you know Dwayne is 
like Dwayne, for example, Dwayne and Jacques, for example, Jacques took over his, his first head coaching job was the Springboks. And Dwayne's essentially first job out of rugby is director of rugby duties and, and a bit of coaching the Springboks set up and around the union. So a pretty big task. But I do understand the sense of frustration from certain from people going like, listen, like you, are you not going to open up doors for other people? You're not going to sort of have a sit down, have an interview process, see what maybe someone new, more experienced could sort of bring to the camp. But in Rusty's sense, it's one of those things where he's won a World Cup, he's won back-to-back World Cup, so it's kind of his, it's kind of his show, it, and we got to live with it. I mean, no, he, he's come back with two World Cups, so it's one of those ones where you can argue, but also, but the results speak for themselves. Yeah, the thing about the succession planning, the downside of succession planning is it could become a little bit incestuous, and I think that's probably what we are all worried about but as you say you can't really point a finger at Rusty and say well that hasn't worked because everything he's done at the moment for the Springboks is working well um, nationally not just with the Springboks I think there's a pretty good setup all around um, the one big side of the things is is I'm pretty sure Dwayne Vermeulen would have chatted to them um, a couple of years ago about like where he wants to go, what he wants to do, or he obviously would have shown an interest in it um, in whatever role he's going to take with the Springboks because we all know how much work, and it's not just the Springboks, every team does it, but how much work players do doing doing other stuff. So yeah, it is a very interesting one. Um, but it's, as I said, it's really hard to say, listen, your your theories don't work. So yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fun. But I'm as you, I'm quite excited to see what exactly his role is and how everything happens because we've lost a whack. We've lost a hell of a lot of, of, of rugby IQ out of the coaching setup alone. So what's going to happen now? And where do you, Cook, where do you see him fitting in? I, I mean, I thought, I thought we'd probably see him more in a defensive role, but obviously like when we rumors have Jerry Flaherty, Jeremy Flaherty is coming in. So I'd like to see what work he does the union and probably more on the defensive side. and. Um, I'd love to see sort of try to maybe make unions more sort of aligned with the way the way the Springboks play. I think Dwayne can sort of sort of bring something that in, in that department. But um it it's hard because like they've never said I mean obviously I mean, still talks and it hasn't been officially announced, but like they haven't said where his his skill set is. I mean, I think obviously we're looking at we're going off his abilities as a player in terms of how he's how he read defenses and we know how big what what integral role that um he played in, you know, defensive structure. So I think that's what we're leaning towards. But I mean, until then, it's kind of hard to assess. I mean, he could just be a, like in terms of the forwards coach. But um, I'm very interested to see the role he plays and in, in which capacity also you have in the park management. Hopefully, they announce it soon, or just or report to an announcer to announce it soon. Who are the basically the unofficial Springbok, um, unofficial Springbok page and newspaper. So. It's going to be, I just really, I'm really interested to see the role he plays. Absolutely. And the thing is, if you have a look at it, he's clearly got the respect of Rossi Erasmus. But if you have a look at all the players, he's played with all of them. For and against and with. For, probably with as well, hey? excuse me. But that's the thing, like he, he's got the respect of all the players. So now it's about him putting it, putting that, put forward and, and really dominating. I don't think he won't. Uh, I don't know much about him, but there's little bits and pieces and he kind of looks like the guy that could really fit into his role quite well. So, 
looking forward to it. I won't lie, but I mean, what we've got, Russi, Dwayne, Tony, and Jerry. That's not a bad setup so long and so far for the Springboks. And it's, I mean, the Springboks jobs right now are quite, uh, seem quite sort of tantalizing as a coach, huh? hundred percent. I mean, like, you are right. I mean, I mean, don't forget, the, you still got the likes of Dion David and Zodilia Stick and all those guys are still back for Andy Edwards or all those guys are still back for another four years. So it's a very tantalizing job. I mean, you don't want to be involved in the Springbok setup. I mean, you're chasing history, chasing a three-peat, and I still maintain that um, the Springboks do look at international rugby and do think that, you know what, come four years' time, they'd still have the squad to, they, still have, they can still have the squad to sort of be favourites to go in in four years. But, um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting one. And I think I do love the fact that, the, for example, now the coaching staff that's been, it's been put together as a good mixture of inexperience and uh, experienced guys, and also a good mixture of um, guys from South Africa and guys, you know, who've, who've coached against South Africa or South African teams in Tony Brown and Flannery. And so it's a good balance. Which, and then obviously on top of it all, it's Rassi Rasmus who's done and done and seen everything in rugby. So I think it's a, it's a very, very good balance so far. And if you from the outside, even if you come in as a consultant, it's something that's, it's a, it's a very tantalizing job. And I haven't even gotten close to the mentioning the players yet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think all in all, barring a couple of negatives on how the process was done, I think it's uh, exciting times ahead for the Springboks. Really looking forward to uh, the, the June test. And as you say, just um, getting, uh, getting the squads, uh, or should I say the coaching setup announced. Wrapping up that Springbok chat, I think it's probably the right time to welcome back Tala. Tala, my man, how are you? Yeah, you see, I'm not able to pod and now people aren't even following run, run sheets anymore because we just start with random news instead of starting with first phase as we usually do. But, you know, we have to all do what we have to do, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's a that's a minus point on Sean. Sean just started by running from the 22 <laughs> instead of just you know, kicking it into touch, getting the set piece going. Like, yeah, you can't, I'm you can't be I'm 2023 Italy. I'm 2023 yeah. Italy, no kicking. <laughs> I was about to say, shock you went full on Scotland in that 20 minutes of mayhem, the second half <laughs> on Saturday. Yeah, but let's get started then with the first phase. An interesting first phase question, which is um, the concept of the Mount Rushmore. Cooks, I think as a follower of American sports, you probably have heard a million of these conversations. But bringing it now to rugby, who would be the four players that are carved onto into you know this Mount Rushmore. So for people that aren't familiar, obviously Mount Rushmore is a um a I guess an attraction in, in the United States, I'm not sure which state actually. Um, but it has four of like the founding fathers and former presidents of the United States. Has been co-opted in, in American sports, especially where it's used to try and discuss, you know, not only the four best or the four greatest players, but probably the more it goes more into iconic players than it does into who's the best necessarily. At least that's my interpretation. So it's about the people that without them, you can't really tell the story of rugby about. Cooks, very interested to hear what your Mount Rushmore would be then. So yeah, I mean, that's the sort of rule I applied in, but in terms of iconic and just, and not in terms of the four best players of all time, just the most iconic. So mine is, I, I, I thought I'd go with someone from the amateur age and I think it's, and my sole um, Northern Hemisphere representative, I thought for someone pre-1996, I thought Gareth Edwards would probably be a good shout. I mean, 
reading the folklore and the stories about him and, and what he's meant to rugby. Back in the day, arguably probably could say the best player before the amateur age. And um, I mean, the, the one of the stories and what, and what he means to rugby in, in the North, especially in Wales. So I had him in there. And then I had Jonah Lomu. I thought he is an integral part of rugby, the first real, real superstar as in the game and a big push to turn the game professional. I mean, it's, there are no rugby poster boys without the original first one in Jonah Lomu. Then I had Dan Carter. For me, in the sense of, I think he's the greatest player of all time. Um, obviously, I mean, his record speaks for himself. I mean, most point scorer, won two World Cups. Um, I mean, three-time player of the year. We know how he ended his career and that incredible run in 2015. And just the most silky rugby player produced could do everything on the rugby field. And then the interesting one for me, the fourth position was tough. So I went, you know, in this new age of rugby in terms of social media content and a lot more eyes at the game. Someone who means is a fantastic, fantastic player, but what his incredible story. Are you going to say uh, James Haskell now? <laughs> Definitely not. If we're doing <laughs> the podcast, if, if we're doing the podcasting, Mount Rushmore, maybe. But I want to see Akulisi as my fourth. I just think in terms of the story and the, uh, his story and also what, how much he's done for the game, he's arguably the biggest rugby player in the world anymore. Like the the true, true global rugby superstar. I mean, the Oak was in the Netherlands on the weekend and he's still being, he's still being, like he's still being um, harassed by fans. I mean, Jared, Jared Butler had to stop his flight so he could meet Sia Colisi. I mean, the, the like what he's done on the field and off the field, obviously being back-to-back World Cups. I just think where rugby is going now in this new, like new age era, social media and all of that, I think he is probably the biggest name in rugby and, He's someone that's changing the game in terms of just what you do on the field and off the field. So that's my Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I love it. I think there's going to be a lot of agreement with at least maybe two, if not three or four of the names there, Cooks. I think that's really good. But let's, um, before I ask for Sean's one, let's just um, give some of the replies from our um, our dirt trackers. Um, we have one that has from... From at Mad Mudrick, he's a big um, New Zealand and All Blacks fan. He has it as Lomu, Carter, McCaw, and Aaron Smith. I mean, actually, it's not too bad. I think at least three of the four are definitely, you know, three of the best, most iconic players ever. And Aaron Smith is close to, if not the best, scrum off ever. Um, at Hezron WW has McCaw, Lomu, Campisi, and Mornay Stain. Uh, the Mornestain one's interesting, Sean. I guess is this for services to the Bulls, services to Tina Turner, simply the Bears, services to slaying the Lions. What do you think, Sean? I definitely think it's uh, the Lions slayer. Just basically every Northern Hemisphere rugby fan that uh, sees that shudders. So it's probably that. <laughs> so that's an interesting one. Then we move to um, at James Well, um, uh, a rugby correspondent for Planet Rugby good friends with um, Jared right now. Um, he has Campisi, Lomu, Edwards, so um, I may say Sean Edwards, <laughs> Gareth Edwards. I assume Gareth Edwards, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, let's, let's assume Gareth Edwards. So Dave Campisi, Jonah Lomu, Gareth Edwards, and Richie McCall. You know, not too much you can argue about that. Campo, I guess, I mean, I wasn't alive for that generation, but yeah, I mean, probably the first mix, or not first, but like, one of the more famous, like, good rugby players, bad boy, but 
you know, really talented. And obviously he was the top try scorer for a long time as well. So I think that's a pretty decent shot. Um, at Jay Long, big Irish fan, says, simple answer, Todd Furlong. Cooks, I think, obviously the prop with, you know, the most magic step and skip pass in the world. You, you wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't argue with that one. I don't think you can even have a picture of his, uh, that Mount Rushmore won't be a picture, four different pictures of him. It'd just be him lying on the mountain, just carved up, lying on his <laughs> side, with the speedo on, and just in, in all his glory. So it's, and I, I refuse to be arguing with, with uh, Todd Furlong, because for example, like, we already have Will Skelton looking for you on this podcast and wanting to do <laughs> grievous bodily harm to you. So I don't think I'm going to add Todd Furlong to that list. <laughs> yeah, and he's coming in July. So let's, let's keep our mouths shut for, for sure there. Um, two more, or three more actually. Um, from Atom Pex and Lazi, he has um, a more contemporary one Jonah Lomu, Siakolisi, Brian Abana, and Dan Carter. A bit of love for Brian Abana there. At DA Me 3, he has, um, I guess, Dimitri. Just figure that out as I was saying it. Um, he has Jonah Lomu. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I was slow in school, guys. Um, <laughs> Jonah Lomu, Dan Carter. Richie McCoy and Brian O'Driscoll. So that's also interesting. I mean, obviously, Bod is a bit of a god in, in, in Irish rugby and Northern Hemisphere rugby. And then Rion Lowe, probably the more, most educated one here. He has um, Ferry Heatley um, for starting the 3 4 1 scrum formation. So Ferry Heatley, I just was Googling quickly. He played both for South Africa and Argentina. He was the fifth captain um, of the Springboks. And he is the man that basically. Um, Gave the Springboks their green jersey. So, I mean, yeah, that's a wow. pretty good... I hadn't even heard of um, it. for that. Yeah, and I mean, with a name like Ferry Heatley, you'd think people would know about him. Um, secondly is Paddy Carolyn. Um, he was part of like the, that first group of Springboks with Paul Ross and, and, and the gang that went to the, the first 12 for the Springboks um, to the UK. Then um, Obas Makotar and Donnie Craven, they were the ones that... Further perfected the three four one scrum formation. Obviously, we know Donnie Craven and his contributions to rugby. Uh, Obas Makota uh, is is is. Um, I think he's he was a coach. I think of the Springboks um, back in the day as well. So yeah, I think Rion Lowe. Maybe I should have Rion Lowe for a, pod, a chat on on like the history of Springbok rugby because he definitely knows his stuff. Sean, I'm very interested as obviously the originator of the idea. What your um, Mount Rushmore is. Well, because of all of the obvious ones, I've changed it up a little bit for a little bit of my own personal banter. Front and center with Arashad Avedad is Sikulisi. I'm a massive fan, a fanboy. I'm just, yeah. And it's obvious why we want them there. I don't think the only bad things you can say about Sikulisi is just because you don't like which country or team he plays for, I think. That's it. Another one, Sean Fitzpatrick. I, he was like my first memory of the All Blacks. And I just remember he was big and hard and yeah, it was crazy. So I'd have Sean Fitzpatrick up there. Another one, someone I absolutely love, Matt Gitto. I think if you take his, his Wallaby stuff aside, which he was great, but I mean, everything he's done after that, he's become like such an incredible, he's basically the, the first IPL contracted rugby player. Like he went to go play for all the best teams and earned all the bucks and, uh, and won all the titles. So Big Macchetto, definitely wants him there. And then another one, Juan Martin Hernandez. Oh, man. 
good looking and a great rugby player, might as well put him up on the mountain, eh? The Gavin Henson snub is is felt <laughs> and is noted there, Sean. Talking about good looking rugby players that don't make it. Jeez. Um, no, I I I really like that one. I'm also gonna do a little bit of a twist. Uh let's do a South African one. So I think you have to go with someone like Donnie Craven as like sort of a foundation piece of South African rugby, um, obviously from way back. And I think also helping, I mean, he was a big contributor to helping Argentinian rugby get big as well um, in like the 60s to 80s. Then in modern times, you, um, I think you then go to, you can either go with the captains, which I think is a little bit boring, but I think the the iconic players of like modern times, I'd say Donny Craven, well, I say Donny Craven, then you go U.S. van der Vestazen, um, youngster, 1995, obviously iconic tackle on Jonah Lomu, but obviously pretty much our best Springbok up until, you know, this newer era of 2000 Springboks came in. Then I would have um, the, the, the golden scrum cap in Victor Matfield, Bulls bias as well. I am not even <laughs> going to try to hide it, but... In that 2000s, 2010s period, obviously dominant, made the Springboks obviously a world champion and a Lions series winner, um, controls and pretty much revolutionized lineouts and contesting lineouts as well. Best player in the world for, or at least one of the best players in the world and best player in his position. And I think probably one of the greatest all time in his position. And then I would then add Siakulisi at the end as obviously two-time World Cup winning captain. And the person that's going to be remembered, I think, or the most from this period of dominance that the Springboks have had. So yeah, very interesting to hear other people's views and thoughts. I think it's a interesting com- conversation that can go many, many ways. Um, it, I think it's quite interesting with rugby because in the NBA, I think it's mostly settled what the Ra- Mount Rushmore would be. In rugby, I think there is a bit of variance. You know, I think the people that have Lomu there, one of Carton, McCaw, I think that's fine and more than fair enough. I think Sia has a good shout. You know, you obviously you can go historically as well. Like there's there's a few angles to take this. So I'm I'm very interested to hear what other people think about it. Okay, guys, let's now get into the review of round one of the Six Nations. What I'm gonna start doing, um, and maybe we can do it in other podcasts in the future, is I'll ask you some quick fire questions just to get us warmed up and just to hear some of our quick hot tap. takes on Yeah, so, oh yes, what we used to call the quick tap and what we can still call the quick tap. Of yeah, things that we that stood out for us in this weekend. So Sean, I'll start with you. Player of the weekend from the Six Nations. Mm, Tagburn. Okay, I like that. Cooks. Mm, <laughs> Can't believe you're asking. Who could it be? No, no. Come on, man. I I was just gonna say Ethan Roots. Hmm, I like that. Yeah, I, you've got. I, I'll go with Joe McCarthy. I think. Yeah, obviously. We can, yeah, we'll talk about him just now. Try of the weekend, Cooks. This is becoming the, the Duan van der Merwe uh, invitation on the first weekend of, of the Six Nations. So <laughs> <laughs> that second trial for me is going to go to Duan van der Merwe. I think this is new. This is a new thing now. I'm just calling the trial of the year in the first week, in the first week of international rugby. Sean? Mm. Mine, Tommy Allen. Tommy Allen's, yes. Allen's try against England. <laughs> that was incredible. Then I'll give love to the Tug Burn try with that Jack Crowley brilliant sort of flat pass, but looking like he was going to pass out the back. Like that was so good from him. And 
it fixed. I think it was Dante that was defending there, and yeah, it put Tugburn clear through. So also just a good performance from Crowley there as well. Biggest surprise, Sean, you can make it positive, you can make it negative, or whatever stood out for you. What's the biggest surprise from the weekend? Biggest surprise was how well the Bricks, Minicello swap around worked. Because they've normally had Bricks mm. at 12 and Minicello at 13, and they moved Minicello to 13, uh, to 12 and Bricks at 13. And I thought that was the biggest surprise for me because it cooked as well. Cooks? For me, it was the Scotland meltdown. I thought it would come in week three, not, 40 sec- not the 47th minute of the, of the first game when they're up 27 0. Like, yeah, cheapers. Uh, I genuinely thought you'd see them, you know, cruise on the weekend. They started off in cruise mode and then I still got them beating France this weekend. And, and then, well, after France's meltdown last week, I, and I, I just did not see that Scotland fall apart. It just looked like bad, bad Scotland. And I was like, at least wait until the middle of the tournament. Like, at least allow expectations to rise first. Don't do it in the start of the Six Nations because it makes it boring. Getting it out nice and early. My surprise is that Ireland somehow found a time machine and brought um, 2010's France to play against them on, on Friday instead of, you know, the <laughs> France that we've known in the last four year, five years. Like, I don't know how Andy Farrell does it you know, I don't think it's allowed. You can't really bring people in with time machines. You can't play players that don't have numbers on their backs. Like Bandiaki was just running around nameless <laughs> and numberless. We're able to cause havoc. No wonder Dante couldn't mark him the whole time. He, did, he couldn't see who it was the whole time. You know, when they're going to bring Cooks numbers. back, when they're going to bring Cooks back, because Dante was cuck. Yeah, Cooks, I, I, we're gonna, I think we can sort of start our discussion on Island France now. Cooks, what the hell happened to you? No, the thing is, what threw me off was um, that Bandiaki not having his um, number on. So I genuinely thought you we were playing against Bishops for the whole time. So I was like, why, why am I playing against Bishops instead of Ireland? And why is because Bandiaki in no jersey on? But um, I do blame the fact that I was also, it was a Friday night. I told you, I'm not good, I'm not good on Friday nights. I'm, I'm meant to be having cold ones, not playing Test Match Rugby. Look, that's, I think, part of a good explanation as to what happened to Dante in the weekend. But yeah, Ireland were just supreme. And let's start with that match. I mean, uh, Ireland's biggest win in France in, I think, ever, basically. 38 points to 17. Ireland scoring five tries to two, including two running malls, and one in the last minute where they didn't really have to, but they just decided, look, let's rub some more salt into the wounds for Ireland as well. The yeah, there's a lot to take from this. A lot of good um, breakout performances from some players with not a lot of experience for Ireland, the likes of Jack Crowley and um, Calvin Nash and, and Joe McCarthy. Sean, look, Ireland is a team that has won 21 of their last 22 test matches. So it shouldn't be too surprising that they obviously were brilliant. But this performance was special and is right up there with some of their best performances in the last few years. Yeah, it was... It was good. Um, we were asking questions about like how Ireland going to bounce back and we kind of, oh, well, I had it wrong. I thought it would be the other way around. I thought Ireland would be a little bit flat and France would be all G'd up. But it was a great performance. Um, they, they managed to spoil in places that France don't normally allow, allow to happen. Um, I really thought um, Luku got a lot, of, a lot of heat about how shit he is because obviously everyone was comparing him to, um, to Antoine Dupont. But the pack didn't protect him at the breakdown 
like once and he just got eaten. Um, and the thing about Ireland is if they pick up a space where you are struggling, they will absolutely exploit you. So yeah, brilliant, brilliant performance, brilliant game. Um, they basically have just drawn a line in the sand and said, we're going to go for the next World Cup. Yeah, and I think not only that, I think it just showed such confidence in their approach in the last few years. They've just, I think, just put it out there to the world that, look, the, what happened against New Zealand, you know, is maybe more of a once-off than it is some big existential crisis. And maybe that's part of what happened with France now on the weekend is, like, how how much of of, of an after-effect is, is losing that World Cup quarterfinal. But they said, look, we trust what we're doing. We've made a few adjustments here and there. I liked also how they didn't really go out into doing you know, all the multi-phase stuff early. They sort of built themselves into the game. And then once the opportunities were there, they took them. And they're really just efficient. Cooks, the, there's, yeah, there's a lot of positives to go around, especially from some of the newer players for Ireland. But I want to start um, by talking about, the, about Jack Crowley and obviously him stepping into um, some sexton sized boots and you know he had a bit of a shaky start he had the charge down he missed the penalty right in front but you know largely just a really good performance and probably the jack crowley we've been seeing for munster that obviously carried them to the title i think that's the the most important takeaway for me in the entire game is the fact that he bounced back from that start you know it would have been easy for him to sort of I mean he's still he's still he's still young um it would have been easy for him you know at you, you playing at the velodrome you you miss you get a charge down, you miss the early penalty, and you're thinking, oh geez. And I'm sure some of the Irish fans are probably thinking at that stage, like, like, oh no, like is this is this the next guy? What's gonna happen now? How's he gonna bounce back? And the fact that he responded and then sort of took charge and command of that game and and, and showed how good he was and showed different facets of, of how good he can be. I thought he kicked I thought he kicked very nicely as well. And then also obviously and he played a lot flatter than what Sexton does. And um and I love the fact that he didn't and and something we spoke about last week is Ireland don't need the Ireland. I was hoping they don't have to try and recreate Johnny Sexton and get someone like Crowley to play the same way that Johnny Sexton did, and everything's going to revolve around him. He sort of they allowed him to play the way that he plays, and 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 I just love how the, he's got a different type of directness that that Sexton has. Um, um, and and I just thought that the control he had, especially in that environment, you coming off that that, that loss from the quarterfinal and um. It just showed the, that he has got a very, very calm head on his shoulders and he shows that he can bounce back from, you know, poor starts. And, and to be a great international 10, you need that. You, you, you need to be able to have a short memory. You need to be able to bounce back because, you know, you never know what happens in games. You, know, you might miss two early kicks and if you, if you find yourself slouching, you, you, that could be the end of you, you know. So I, I, thought, it was, I thought it was very remarkable the way he bounced back and, He's such a great player to watch, and I'm very interested to see how he goes. I think Ireland have obviously found this, their successor, and and I, and I do hope that because he, he will have bad games, um, and I just hope that they just you know give him the time, let, let him have the time in the saddle, let him come to South Africa and and and, and try to beat the Springboks here. You know, let him go to and and play in these big games, and, and I think that was the perfect start for him because you know it, it'd be one thing if he cooks against Italy, for example, or a poor Welsh side, and then the test comes against France early. I think now the confidence that he'll have knowing that that's how well he plays, one of the best players in the field against France in France and a key, and a key, he played a key role in them getting the bonus point win. So for him, he's, he's probably buzzing at the moment he, and he'll know he can get better. So 
for Ireland, you ticked all the boxes, and I think they they Andy Farrell's probably smiling. Yeah, I think that's that's really good what you've said. The cooks like it's the bounce back that I think will be very indicative and just shows. Yeah, I mean, obviously hindsight's now twenty twenty, but just shows that even for like when we talk about last year and they weren't really able to replace Sexton at the end of that um, New Zealand quarterfinal. I mean, this this Crowley kid has shown that he has that big match temperament. I mean, he's shown it um, domestically. He's now done it against you know one of the best teams in the world. So yeah, if he can just be consistent and you know, go through the season having these performances is going to put him in real good stead. Um, Sean, you made the point earlier about Luca not being protected in the rucks, but yeah, I want I want you to just talk about just the approach that Ireland had because they just seemed to out you know they blew France away physically, like the likes of McCarthy and Aki, you know, either with their runs or tackles or Doris in the rucks, like they just gave France absolutely nothing. Yeah. They they capitalized the most on a, probably a French side that was still trying to find themselves after DuPont not being there. What they did was they, they killed it at source and they really disrupt, disrupted Luku um, and sort of pounced on any errors with the big boys that you mentioned. And yeah, they, they kind of struggled to get going. I think France probably need to look somewhere to possibly bring in Ramos a little bit more to have kind of like another playmaker come into the line a little bit more there. So used to having that with, with DuPont. Um, they also trust everything he does, no matter whether it's a good or a bad decision. And I, it's, listen, it's not like Luku's brand new. I just, I just don't think that he played as badly because of himself. Um, I think he played badly a lot because of what Ireland were doing and how little protection he was getting. But Ireland came in strong and hard and they dominated. They took everyone out of the game and it was incredible to see. And what they did was they sort of planted that seed of doubt in the French minds, which we have known and seen many, many times and we thought had gone. But they they planted it and they just watered it all, all game, you know. So I don't think it's going to affect France as badly as it did in the past, but they'll have to fix quite a few things moving forward. I just, I felt bad for Luku and. I think the biggest way to describe these struggles for Luku was he's just not DuPont in terms of DuPont has the ability, even when going backwards, somehow he can create. I've, we've seen him, you know, get no protection, the ball squirts out of a rack, he picks it up, he beats one defender and he makes a line break and he creates something out of nothing. And, I thought, and, 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 and DuPont's probably at his most dangerous when the game gets broken up or a broken play, whereas Luku's not that type of nine. And, you know, and, and you're right, Shocky, he didn't get the protection he needed and not and he's what most nuns go that's how most nuns react under that pressure. You know, it's it, it becomes hard when you're not you're not dominating at rock time and every time you're picking up the ball it's a mess, it's a scrap and it's sort of it, it's it, it's sort of a knockdown effect from the pack. But you know, it it's so hard when the guy you're replacing, who's the best rugby player in the world, who's made a living and that's what he does and and that's one of the few things that that separates Dupont from probably every other nine is the ability to still find something out of nothing when you're going backwards and steal a try or create a try where they shouldn't have. So as much as as much as Luku obviously did the best of games, it's it's very hard because most French fans and most people are like, oh well, you're the guy you're replacing. That's what he does, and it's like I always say the, the Springboks sometimes like. 
you can't, you don't have another Faf Duplessis. I mean, Faf Duplessis, sorry, so, I mean, it's a 20 mode. Another <laughs> Faf Duclerc. Um, you don't, you, you, like, you, you, you can't create what Faf does, the chaos that he plays with. And so when he's out, you can't ask another nine to play like Faf Duclerc. And if you do, he's, he's going to fail because that's not his game. It's almost like Luku as well in that situation. He can't do what Dupont does because Dupont is a freak. But you know, it's not, it's not only Luku's ability. You must understand that the defense reacts differently too. So you wouldn't have all those forwards piling in on Luku if it was Dupont. Not because he's a different player, because they know if they get it wrong with Antoine Dupont, they are going to be punished. So like they, they probably wouldn't have been so aggressive if Dupont was there. They probably would have kept their pillars and posts around there so he can't snipe, so he is forced to do something. Where once they once they, there was a bit of blood in the water when they when they got all over Luca the first time they were like cool this is it so the defense changes the way they deal with things as well and I think they got it spot on and not only did they get it spot on but they were given a lot more chances to just cause shit. Yeah, you make a very good point there, Sean. It's the fact that Dupont, you know, because there's no Dupont, you worry less about that snipe. And look, Dupont is probably the strongest scrum half we've ever seen. Like probably, I mean, going back to what we were talking about, like Mount Rushmore's like, is like Yosef van der Vesta is in the fact that he's as big and as physical as a flank. So if it is, you know, Joe McCarthy or Tug Byrne or Kalen Doris that's messing up the ruck, DuPont has the ability to just strike them off and then create something. So, you know, Ireland and any other teams are less willing to, you know, flood themselves in the rucks to try and get into his face. I mean, that's, just something that would work a little bit less, you know, against uh, against uh, against France when Dupont's playing. But I think it's it's a good centerpiece of three of the big problems for France in that game. One was their racking. Like usually, they can get away with, you know, obviously they have obviously massive forwards. They can get away with their massive forwards not getting there in time because Dupont can, you know, as they go through their phases and start to run out of people around the runners. They can have Dupont just getting there and just you know muscling in his way through like the the opposition's bodies. The second issue around that is the the the, the lack of French. It just showed that while Ireland was putting pressure in the in the rack and in the turnover, France just never did anything. Like we know, and France was. I think I was listening to the 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 the. the the, the rugby rugby union daily podcast and Sam Warburton was there and he said that in the last six nations France competed in fifty percent of the rucks that they defended, but in this in, in, in the match against Ireland they only competed against thirty three percent of the rucks. So is that because they didn't pick Julian Marchant? I mean I know Mavaka had a great game. Is did they allow Greg? Did Ireland not really allow Greg Aldridge to have an impact in the rack? So. Ireland was slowing down France's ball and make it very dirty, and they did it obviously in the in the lineout as well. France just never really impacted the Irish ball, and that then obviously creates the space for Ireland to cause havoc in their attack. And the third problem, which I think was a big mistake now from France tacti- tactically, was their kicking game was just nowhere. Like James Lowe pretty much dictated terms with his left boot, like kicked it deep, put them under pressure, and did what France usually does to other teams of kicking it deep and, and making you have to do something from your corner and then you kick it out and then give Ireland an attacking platform. And there were too many times where France was trying to attack and they kept ball in the middle of the field that they didn't need to keep. They should have just, you know, kicked it deep and, 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 
and 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 you know re- resign themselves from that position. So I think that comes from you know Luku, Jalibe, Ramos. You know the decision makers there. They need to. I think they need to kick the ball more. I mean, that is one thing that came out of that full contact. There's that episode where Sean Edwards says, you know, stop faffing around in your half, kick the ball. And France needed to heed that warning. And look, we know, obviously, France are missing, you know, DuPont and Tamak. The one thing that Tamak, even though he's sometimes not really rated, in, in, especially in France, the one, thing that, the one good thing about Tamak is that he kicks, and he kicks a lot, and he kicks quite well around the field. And I think... France would have been more willing to just, you know, go into the kicking game and try to nullify the James Lowe threat by also kicking deep, also trying to put Ireland into their own half instead of now trying to launch um, attacks, you know, deep inside their half. And I think those were the big downfalls for 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 France on Friday because now Luku isn't really executing this box kick. He's not even looking to box kick. Jalibe and Ramos aren't really stepping in to try and help him by also trying to clear the lines. And every time they did kick, they just found James Lowe, gave him a lot of space, and Lowe would just kick it back, you know, you know, across across the you know across the field to 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 put them under pressure. So, yeah, France needs to fix, I think, those things. But Cooks just going now into France is it a matter of these things are fixable? They they're still obviously a fantastic team, or are there deeper things that you are now starting to get concerned over? No, I want to give France the benefit of the doubt. You know, I think um, I, I do think these things are fixable. Um, they did they did catch Ireland on a very, very on a very good day. You know, I think um, you know I think it was it was a lot more good Ireland than poor France. Um, you know, when it's you know when it's two very good sides going up against each other, um, you know the final everyone wanted um, in in, um, in exclamation marks. Um, <laughs> you sort of um, yes, you, man. You sort of. You, if you if you just down, you know a few percentages. You're not you're not you're not at 100 percent, and you're catching Ireland on a good day. Sometimes you will catch points. You know you you look at the the Springboks versus New Zealand at Twickenham. I mean Springboks were operating at such a high level, and the All Blacks were just were just off it, and they just caught an absolute um, hurricane from the Springboks, who came flying out the gates. And I, and I feel that was sort of similar to France because what was interesting in that game is also. France kept themselves in that game. I mean, 17-14 at halftime. I mean, you didn't think that... I mean, Ireland was by far the better side, but France has kept themselves in the game. And, and then obviously there's those two late tries. So, you know, France was still... Even when they weren't at their best, they were still able to keep themselves in the game. And then obviously Ireland being a good side just pulled away right, right at the end. And it, doesn't, it didn't help that Paul Valimster decides that um, you didn't feel like playing rugby and he's just going to flip and just uh, tackle any, any, everything above the shoulders, which... And he still made that stupid comments like, well, where are we supposed to tackle? Like, lower, Paul. It's very, it's very fucking simple. <laughs> like, it's, it's not rocket science. And also, what pissed me off the most about it is like, it's not like he was at, at bent already, especially in that second one. It's not like he was like kneeling down trying to get low and the guy dropped. He was almost standing upright. I'm like, also, you just got a yellow card for something. You do, you do, you do the exact same thing. And you go to the referee like, where are we supposed to tackle? I'm like, just get off the field. Like, so... <laughs> So it's all it's those things, where, like just all those things for France. Where like, yeah, talk about a time machine. They just they reverse back to the poor villains that we basically shipped out of South Africa. That's also who got in the time machine as well. So I do think it's fixable, and I, and I do give France the benefit of the doubt. And you know, I mean, they are still high quality out for that. They are just it does it just felt though just just not at the races on the weekend and 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 all those issues. I think it's definitely something that they will fix. And and I don't think many other sides. Will, 
could have put them to the sword that day, say Bar Island or possibly the Springboks. I'm glad that <clears throat> I'm glad that we brought up Paul Willemse because we were just chatting away about how good Ireland were and how poor France were. I agree with you. I do think France will bounce back. Um, I don't think it's going to be a problem. Um, I don't know who they're playing this weekend, but they must be careful. The the thing with the Willemse, it's such a oh, it was so frustrating, man. Like, oh, France were a man down for what is it, 20, I think they played with 40, uh, 15 men for about 22 minutes or maybe 28 minutes. Like, if you think about everything that happened that day, everything that happened leading into the game with Ireland wanting to perform, with France wanting to perform, not having DuPont, um, and then not playing well against an Ireland that are playing well, and then you want to do it with 14 men and losing a player like Paul Willem, so who's there clearly to fulfill a very big role. Um, I posted on Rugby Bits Twitter that he was comfortably the leading um, tackler barring his, um, barring his, um, his, uh, the high tackles. Like he had made 10 tackles and, and played like 10, 15 minutes less than everyone else. So he was there to fulfill a massive role and France needed it. Um, and, you know, if you put everything together, like they were going to land up in big shit. Yeah, and all the other effects that the Paul Willemse red card has on now the lineout is a complete mess. I mean, France, who had one of the best lineouts in the World Cup, they missed, I think it was four of the 14 lineouts. So, and I think you can see some of the disorganization was as a consequence of losing Willemse as, you know, sometimes he can jump, sometimes he's a lifter as well. It just puts everyone off their roles. And, um, you know, the lock that they had on the field, um, Paul... Gabriel Leagues, I don't know if I'm saying this name right. Um, no, Gabriel Leagues, probably. Um, he, you know, he's obviously, he's playing his, I think he's, it's a, he has, it's his first test in like four or five years. Not probably, you know, he's probably what, fifth, sixth, seventh choice for France. Um, I, I maybe would have subbed in Cameron Rockie, but then obviously you're losing in the scrum as well because, you know, um, Gabriel Leagues is a, is, a, is, a, is a bigger lock than Rockie is. So, you now have that chaos in the lineout, which is probably why both Malvaka and Marchand were just struggling there. And Ireland has pretty much five jumpers from four to eight in their in their squad. Then it's there's just there was just no rolling more defense, <laughs> especially in the second half. So Ireland just Crazy, scores eh? two pretty easy, pretty easy tries. Willems is pretty good at that. We know that um, when Tafi Fanua plays, he's really good at that as well. We know when Manny Miafu plays, at least for Toulouse, he's really good at that. So you lose that defensive um, line-out pressure person as well. And like Cook said, look, and that's why I'm also leaning towards, look, France is fine. Like, and maybe this is, you know, guys, or let me talk from my experience. Let me not put this on you guys. You know, sometimes you go through a breakup, you go through some sort of heartbreak. You need that one night or that month in your life where you're just going to be an absolute nutcase. So you are probably doing things that you shouldn't be doing. You're probably in the club a lot more than you should be doing, probably drinking more than you should be. You need that night just to flush everything out. And I think that's what Marseille was for France. It was, look, we played as well as we could against South Africa and we still lost and we lost in the World Cup quarterfinal at home. All that heartbreak, all that contemplation, we thought it would come out with a more positive thing. Maybe it's just a negative thing. Look, just flush all of it out. Cooks, you have that rule of, you know, there's just some games that you have in a season. We don't even need to watch the video. We just move on. And maybe that's a part of that as well for France. Sean? 
Matt, basically what France did, to just build on what you've just said, France were hoping that they were going to have their flush out at a club in Camps Bay. But instead, they ended up in Benoni and got absolutely thumped. Like, there's a big difference, eh? They went to Benoni and pulled in after everyone had drank all the brandy, whatever, and then just got a hiding. So that's a cuck one. Yeah, look, you need to you need to pick these places a lot better. And also, France have a new attack coach. And I think that also was shown in just how unstructured their attack was most of the game. Like, they didn't... The only thing that France was doing was going narrow. And then when they tried to go wide, there was just a lot of confusion there. So it'll be interesting to see if Gaultier has pretty much said he's going to keep the same team. I think they should be given the Scotland game at the very least. And then if something happens in the Scotland game, if they lose that game, and obviously they're pretty much out of the Six Nations, then you can start being like, okay, maybe we need to start thinking about um, you know, players after Uni Antonio, players after like to take up that Willemse, Taufi, Fenua role, you know, players after Dante and Fiku in the midfield. And then you can start maybe going on a much more of a refreshing, refresher project. But otherwise, I think for France, you know, there's a few positives. Lagaric Le- played well. They, they, they've stayed in the fight mostly. But I think the biggest negative is just that that last 10 minutes, they clearly just gave up the ghost. And yeah, that's, that's not great to see. But yeah. There's, there's a reason why France have pretty much not lost many games in the last few years. And the games that they've lost, they usually lose them by less than seven points. Guys, any final thoughts about the France Island game, Cooks? My thoughts are very simple. To Rob Herring, who keeps saying this oh, is no. the, the World Cup you want <laughs> to hear. Hashtag Sabers Abroad. Can they just get fucking over it? It's very simple. Like, you had a quarterfinal, both teams, one was at home, one at 117 straight. And they'll argue favorites for both. And they lost. They didn't get robbed. They didn't, like, it wasn't because of some refereeing decision or anything. They just lost. You didn't get over it. Like, you have the, you, the, the, the North Hemisphere peaked for those three years and they shut the bed. It's very simple. Stop giving us this bullshit like it's the final everyone wanted. We got South African All Blacks, the oldest rivalry in rugby. Well, not oldest rivalry, but the biggest rivalry in rugby, the most successful two teams in rugby playing. But now we keep hearing this bullshit about, oh, everyone just wanted to see Ireland and France. And everyone, who is everyone? The guys, people who eat croissants and people who drink Guinness all day. That doesn't constitute the whole of rugby. I just get so annoyed with those that take, like, just get over it. Just win, uh, win a quarterfinal. It's all they had to do. And also, how do we not know that they wouldn't have lost the semi? Like, it's not like, it's one thing if it was a semifinal and they both lost in the semifinal on one thing or, you know, late drop goal here or there. They shut the bed. As simple as that. And I just wish they could just get over it and win a new World Cup cycle now. You had a chance to win it, the best chance for, the, for, for them to win it, and they shut the bed. And now Rob Hearing, everyone is, keeps, keeps going like, oh, this is the two big, this is the games you wanted to see. World and you stick got to wrong. the Dragons. We, that's the South oh, African you're speaking about. I'm not attacking just, teams anymore. I'm attacking <laughs> columnists and pundits. That's, that's who my wrath is for now. And I promise you, if I read it again, I'm going to have the same rant next week. <laughs> I'm actually going to send it to you just before the next week's podcast, just for shits and giggles. <laughs> like if someone else goes like, oh man, I can't wait for the island if they would go to the Grand Slam. Like, oh, this is the true world champions. The Springboks could never do the Grand Slam in Europe. Oh, it's coming. Fuck, if Ireland wins a test, <laughs> oh my God. If Ireland had to win the season in South Africa, I promise you I might shut down Twitter because they'll be like, we're the true champions because we beat 
Oh, they, they, they still say that bullshit because they say they're the true champions because they're the only team that beat the Springboks. Oh, just you get over it. What would, happen, you, yeah. what would happen if Ireland did win the World Cup? You, what would happen then? I don't know, Sean. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't live in that world. The problem is, I think Ireland could win the World Cup if it became a league format. No, no quarterfinals, just league. You just play everyone, and you join it that way. Just Six avoid nations. any, yeah, avoid any big match knockout situation. At least Six Nations, like, oh, you get your points. You got there's always next week. But anything that requires like quarterfinals, look at the under twenties. They got the semifinal because there is no quarterfinal stage. It, they need to find a way to eliminate that piece of the tournament, <laughs> the quarterfinal stage. Ah. Yeah, just a PSA for Ireland, uh, Irish and French, actually. Columnists, pundits, journalists, just don't mention the Rugby World Cup. Just pretend it doesn't happen. Focus on these test matches. You're playing really well. You have two good generational teams. Like, you're dominating Europe. You're getting good big wins in the Southern Hemisphere. Don't look at the World Cup until 2026. Just, just leave it. Don't talk about 2023. Don't talk about, you know, we should have done this and that. Who cares? Especially Ireland. You've now shown clearly that you're still a really good team. At least no one's going to be beating you with the stick. France hopefully will do that against, you know, Finn's boys on Saturday. Just don't talk about it. It's really better and easier for everyone. And you'll stop the, the Cook's Weekly rant as well. Um, speaking of things that Cook's can rant about... Um, I was watching the Wales versus Scotland game. And, you know, obviously Wales is, you know, basically starting some kindergartners, Scotland, um, you know, they, they're playing, I mean, you know, they've kept the same um, coaching and, the, and pretty much the same squad that they had um, in the Rugby World Cup. So Scotland plays a really good first half, get themselves 20-0 ahead. And then they get themselves with that Duan Fandamava wonder try that Cooks talked about earlier and is... Um, you know, try of the weekend. It's 27 no early in the second half. So I want to get a few brownie points. I'm like, you know what, wife, let's change the channel. Let's watch Come Dine With Me or something because this game is over. So or we change the channel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's, let's, you know, the rugby is over here. Like, watched obviously close to four hours of rugby. It's all good. Let's, let's now delight in some series. So, Cooks, what happened after Don van Maver scored? You know, I was, you know, you know, like I was, I actually didn't watch the game live because I was working at the cricket on Saturday in, at Wanderers. Mm. But then I, I kept seeing the tweets and I, the first tweet I saw was Tyler talking about, well, when Russell's playing, then I knew there's a feast that was waiting for me when I get home <laughs> on Sunday, a beautiful three course feast, you know, which was, was, was beautiful starters, great, great main course, you know, some desserts that was waiting for me. And then I sort of lost track of the game and then, I got home and I saw the score and I was like, well, what on earth happened? And even that didn't brace me for what I watched on Sunday when I rewatched the game. I was like, I, I genuinely, Scotland was incredible and then they just stopped playing rugby. They gave us silly penalties, two yellow cards. And, and, and when Aaron Wainwright was incredible, man, man possessed. But Scotland legit just completely melted down. And I was like, then... Then I just and I thought they're not gonna lose this game by like a point. They might lose this game by by ten points. They might concede another two more tries here, and you'd never think they were up twenty seven nil. But um, they're like it's it's Scotland being Scotland. They went they went full on Scotland mode, where they just like let's do let we've just seen how well we can play. Let's do the opposite. 
And that game was funny because I've never seen a team like Wales who just were pretty much hopeless that first half, the first 42 minutes. And then, then Scotland was like, hold my beer. We'll be worse than you for the next 25. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, this, this is what we're watching here. And then Scotland was like, okay, hold my beer. We're going to be good again and close this game. We're going to actually show composure and close this game out like a, like a good test side. And I'm like, what, what on earth have I just watched? <laughs> I was like, this makes zero sense to me. But it's one of those games, again, it goes to the point, like Scotland should be very disappointed. It's a weird feeling because They'll be disappointed that what they did to allow Wales in, but they'll be thrilled that they're able to show composure, which where this game like that where they've let go and won the game. So Epitome I don't know how they're going to feel. Yeah, they're like basically like 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 like, like shit good. Like how my like how my girlfriend feels when she comes back from the gym. Like she's she's happy that she's she's gym, but then she's annoyed at me because she's stiff. Like it's either way. Like it's a win. It's a win and a lose at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, look, there's sometimes in rugby, momentum just builds and you can't really stop it. And Sean, I want you to maybe talk about what maybe Scotland could have or should have done to stop the momentum. Because I think the most interesting um, stat that comes out of this game is Wales conceded four penalties in total in the game. And all four penalties were conceded in the first 25 minutes. So three in the first seven minutes when Ben O'Keefe gave a warning to Wales about, you know, if there's an offside again, there'll be yellow card. Wales heeded that warning clearly. Jeez. And then Josh Adams, I don't know what the hell Josh Adams was thinking. He throws the ball out of the thing. He he concedes a penalty as well. Warren Gatlin throws him under the bus and blames him for losing. But then Scotland (laughs) concedes after that 17 penalties. Like more than anything else, I think that shows just how horrid they were in the second half and just trying to give the ball, the, the game away. But Sean, yeah, what, what could have or should have Scotland have done? Should they have slowed the game down? Should they have kicked a bit more? Should they have kept the ball in hand more? Should they have slowed down the tempo? What, what, what should they have done? Uh, it's weird because, I mean, I think they conceded 16, 16 penalties on the trot. Like, with our... Wales conceding a penalty as, as you I think 17 actually but yeah 17 I didn't know it was Jeez. all that's it's crazy but the thing is it's so weird you're playing that way at half time what are you saying you're like guys more of this awesome get out there you play more of that you score another try and you're like okay we're golden and then it changes and then Wales make a little bit of a fight back and you're like cool it was one try forget about it but before you know it like the game's almost away from you and you are the whales of the first half. So to change, they, they really need, they really need the, the leaders in the group to recognize that earlier. It's really, it's because Wales are playing at home. They would have spoken about it at halftime saying they are going to come back. And everyone was like, deep down, sure, they're going to come back, but will it be good enough? Well, hell yeah. So it's more about recognizing when you're losing those battles and, and how Wales, because Wales had nothing to lose. They could have lost by 60. It would have been the same, you know, it's what we all expected. So they had nothing to lose. So for me, it would be recognizing and trying to rectify and slow the game down just in certain areas. Like the spaces that you're losing, like, cool, let's chill out. Let's get it back together. Kill 10 minutes, turn the momentum, and then we're golden again. Okay, Cooks, let me allow you to be positive. What did Scotland do well in that first um, in that first half? Oh, they had a magician, Tyler. 
one of the one of the great magicians, you know, of our time, David Copperfield. Um, just, just, just. But just, you didn't put him on your Mount Rushmore. You didn't put no, him on your no, Mount Rushmore. I'm just no, saying because I'm, I'm trying to saying. be. I'm trying to be objective in 2024. Um, <laughs> but um, just Russell just just was was a serving up beautiful, beautiful passes, kicking his kicking game was. He's such a good, got such a good kicking game. That 50-22, just everything Finn touched. I mean, that the, the second tries for Duan. Oh, I mean, just beautiful. But um, also, I think the big difference for me was for Scotland was it's just the kicking game. Tell you touching it on Twitter. It's Something that's very underrated in Finn's game, and I thought Ben White kicked well as well. They just kept putting Wales under so much pressure, and then just and Wales just didn't know how to respond, and they, they, they give back poor kicks, and then Scotland would just punish them. And you know, it's when Scotland can put together that kicking game, and I thought they said piece was good as well early on. When they can put that together, then you then you throw in the magic of a Finn Russell. I thought, uh, I mean, Tupelo's pass, little 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 pass they gave to Finn for that first try for Duan was it just shows. <sighs> Nice. It just shows the, the the balance of attack they can have, and see when they get that right, they become hard to stop. And and and, and I still do think they are a Joe McCarthy or a, a player like that up front, especially in the locks mm. away from being where they need to be. I think that that they pack can still can still be can teams can can still target them. Then in sort of like you looked at you looked at uh, Wales when a, a little bit more direct when Wayne like Wayne's carries and. And Ref, I thought it was fantastic as well. They they do sort of crumble a bit, and, they, and then they go into that old Scotland mode where they try to throw everything, and they just and they sort of lose a little bit of structure. I think when they just keep the kicking structure properly, they they and know they can rely on that magic when it needs to be. Not sort of look for the magic trial, look for the magic moment all the time. That's what tends to happen, and and you sort of you see that with Finn as well. It's when he starts looking fidgety, the team does because. Kind of feels like with Scotland when they get into deep trouble, they they give them the ball and they're like, okay, do something now, create something because we we in the trenches and everyone sort of just stands around and waits for him to sort of create something. But that first half is that's a, that's how good they can be. But again, how do you, how do we know they can replicate that for five games? Yeah, I love the point about Scotland just needing that big physical, you know, ball carrier and just destroyer in 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 defense as well and just. You know, if if you can give Scotland obviously one of the many like South African like destroyer type players that we have, like big blindside flanks, or you know even someone like Joe McCarthy, that would make a difference, and also just give them a a, a platform, because you know when you look at Scotland, even with their um like in their carry stats, it's not forwards. It's usually with carry stats, what you usually see is that it'll be the fullback. And some forwards that would be top in your carrying stats because obviously the fullback is carrying back from from kicks. So like in in the Wales case, Cam Winnett was number one for carries, and then number two is Aaron Wainwright, who's obviously just causing um was causing damage in that second half. But for Scotland, it was Carl Rowe number one, then it's Duan and Carl Stay, and then it's only Luke Crosby at you know nine nine eight, and then you know all of their backline players have more like all of their backline players are near the top of the carries. You have six of the backline players and only two of the forwards, you know, in that top six, I mean, top eight. So there is just someone that they're missing just to, to, to carry up the ball. And even I think that's why um, Ethan Roots was so important for England, and we'll talk about that just now, is just, you know, having that ball carrier just to also just give something a bit extra when, you know, when you, the game's not really going your way. If you do get that little bit of ball, just having someone that can just, 
you know, bang down the doors, just make the defense tired. Um, that's such an important thing that, you know, Scotland just needs to try and find. But yeah, like that first off, that 10, 12, 13, Cooks, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something I'm going to regret now. But in terms of attacking 10, 12, 13s, Finn, Tiplo, to Jones, oh, there's not too many that are better than them. That's all I'm going to say. Because that 10, 12, 13 thing that they do and Tupelo takes the ball up to the line. Hugh Jones is running that line just on his shoulder and Finn loops around. It, it, it gets me every time. It's close to one of the most, my, my favorite things to watch in rugby right now. Tyler, I'm going to clip that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to listen to it even now before I go to bed. I did not say I Finn Russell's my favorite player. <laughs> I said the 10, 12, 13 might be one of my favorites. I just want to put I'll it out there. I'll stop listening when you said Finn in, in, a, positive, in, in a positive tone. I'll stop listening to the rest. But you are right. I think on attack is, and, and you can see the way they just gel off each other. And, and I think the big difference for me, Tala, is Tupulutu. Having mm. his ability so to carry, and, and you have to sort of mark him one very because, but also he's got such a great, his, his soft skills are so good as well that he knows when to release the ball, and especially when to release the ball, when to carry, got a good offloading game. But also, if you sort of lean off him, he can bulldoze over you. And I think he's made a big difference. I think we've seen how good. Finn and Hugh Jones have been, and they've tried so many other 12s. 12s always, 12s always been the troublesome position for them. And you look at where rugby is now, you, you need a big 12. I think that's where the game is going. Like Dialendi, Pandiaki, and um, Jonathan Dante. And in that mode, you need a big 12. And then sort of now they've finally gotten that. And I think that's been what's, what's elevated Finn and Hugh Jones is to pollute. I think he's the key cog to... To, to in that midfield three, I think he's the probably the most important player there. I think he's the one that makes it tick because of his ability to carry, because of his ability to have that soft skills. I think you you remove him, you remove him, they are, they become a different team, especially in attack. Tuipilatu is really sort of tapping into that middle to end Ma Nanu career, where he was offering everything as a rugby player, where. There's the distribution, there's the kicking. Um, and then he, as you say, has got that ability to just absolutely steamroll you if you're on your if you're on your heels. And we don't, we haven't seen that. There's not a lot of a lot of 12s that do that. There are 12s that have different different aspects and and everything, but there's isn't anyone as well balanced as he is with all three of those, those, those sort of kick, kick, pass, run sort of vibes about him. So I'm interested to see how it moves from here for him because I agree. I think it doesn't work without him there. Um, they all add a lot of value in that, um, in that trio, but I think it all hinges on, on him and his vision and ability to play and, and all that sort of jazz. Yeah, I love that point, Sean. Like, it's like a grand pass threat that makes that 10, 12, 13 axis just so threatening. Um, Sean, just talking now, focusing on Wales, like... <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot of criticism on, on the first half and on um, Davies and Costello and the perception that they're just kicking everything away um, before, like, and that that's the reason why they didn't play well. And then it looks like the heroes now are Tomas Williams and Ian Lloyd. You know, I don't think it's that simple. I mean, obviously, I, I mean, you need to form a, uh, establish a platform and Wales is obviously quite inexperienced. So it's, gone, it's not like they can really just go and go and attack from minute one. But 
I guess the question is, and a bit of confusion for Wales and Gatlin now going forward is, what's the approach that they should take now going, you know, going next week to Twickenham? Like, maybe it is a bit of a mix of the two. By picking Thomas Williams, we know he's obviously got a good running threat, but he's um, someone that can still, you know, control things at nine. Costello is obviously a really good um, young fly half. I, I have so many questions now about how Wales will approach the game in that respect, number one. And number two, you know, is Ga- I mean, does Gatland, can Gatland coach a team that's, that keeps the possession a lot more? Um, you know, in the second half, the possession and the territory went all the way to Wales. As, and and in, the, in the first, well, the first half, especially the possession was always Scotland. So is... Is Gatlin someone that can coach a high, a higher possession team? If that's what will work for Wales, I'm. It's so interesting what this comeback means for them going forward. Yeah, the one thing about Gatlin, the old shepherd's hook comes out early and and when it's necessary. It's um, he made a hell of a lot of changes. I think he made six changes in before five minutes into the second half. Um, interesting times ahead though, because. What do you do? Personally, I really feel that you 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 start Davies and Costello again, because do you are they? Can you work on them? I mean, Davies shouldn't be too bad. Like he can sort his shit out and get back in the game, and Costello will benefit from that. But do you want to drop them to the bench or drop them out the squad? But if you drop them to the bench, you're going to bring them on in a tight game next week, and then how are they doing? So I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, but basically, there's a hell of a lot of that that's going to go down because the change happened with the bench on. So we're looking ahead to some interesting times. To answer your question about Gatland and him changing up his coaching style and setup, I think the short answer is he's going to have to. Um, he's going to have to look at something else. I don't think that he's so kind of to use another term, like so typecast in, in, in his coaching ability. I think he's got a little bit more, but is he, is, is this game plan because of the personnel or is this game plan because he wants to square peg round hole everyone? Um, we've seen how that works, especially in South Africa. Um, he's going to have to change things up a little bit. What is interesting though, is Nick Tompkins again. Um, I saw some stats that he's been the second highest passer in the back line, or he's got a, the most he's comfortably got the most passes out of any twelve in the in in the Six Nations. So they are looking to do something more, but it's gonna yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens this week coming because there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, and I don't know how they're gonna get answered. Like Tala, what would you do? Would you would you start Davies and Costello, or would you drop them? Like there's positives and negatives to both. I think it's more just be accurate with the approach that you're taking. So I think most of the issues with the first half was there was just no intensity for Wales and like their kick chase. They didn't really, you know, contest well, especially using someone like Josh Adams, who's obviously just amazing in the air. Um, they just didn't really put much pressure on where on, on Scotland um, up front, like in, in, in stopping and, and stopping their momentum and in, in, in attack. Their carries it's, yeah, it's so weird that Aaron Wainwright in the second half just became a man possessed. But in the first half, no one was getting any, like no one was making any gain line carries or making gain line carries going over the advantage line. And, you know, you look at the loose trail picked. I mean, 
Wainwright, obviously, we now see he can do that. James Botham, maybe, uh, you know, I haven't seen him too much, to be honest, so let me not comment too much on, on him. Um, Tommy Raphael, I don't think carrying is his biggest thing. You know, Jenkins is not necessarily like the biggest, I think, in terms of carrying. He doesn't really do that much, at least from like what I've watched of him. So, you know, yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but I think you need... Wales also needs to try and see if they can find carries. Obviously, they have a lot of injuries right now. So it's it's maybe just reconfiguring certain things like in your starting team and the bench and just being like, okay, Wainwright, you know, you did really well. Can we maybe trust someone like Alex Mann to start instead of um, James Botham? So you put Mann maybe on the on the flank and have Wainwright at eight. Um, and then, you know, just maybe start um, Thomas Williams. There's just, I don't know, I'm I'm a big fan of his. But yeah, he just plays, I think, with a lot more urgency and confidence. But Williams and Gareth Davies, they're like the most up and down little couple in the world. Because when Davies is playing well, Williams is having a bit of rough patch. When Williams is playing well, Davies is having a rough patch. And they just interchange and switch with each other whenever. So I don't think it matters too much who's played at nine and who's played at 10. But I don't think it, it needs that much of a big change in approach. Just change the intensity and maybe just get one or two better gain line carriers. Rollins will help. I think he was away because um, he was expecting his uh, the birth of his child. So Rollins, I, I figure him to be a bit more of a gain line presence. So you might lose on the rolling mall, and maybe you don't want to do that against England. But yeah, it's those swings and roundabouts that you need to do. Big shout out also to Ryan Elias. I think he had a really good game, um, putting pressure in the rucks um, um, against Scotland. Um, you know, there's a lot of injuries that they have in the front row with a lot of their hookers out and their props out as well. And Elias played really well. Their props mostly held on in the scrum. But yeah, they'll obviously face a tough test against um, the vets and Joe Marlon and Dan Cole. Hooks? I think the big upside for Wales as well is, I mean, they are extremely young side. Um, and, you know, they could have rolled over and it could have gotten messy. I mean, it could have gotten up in the late 40s, 50 range. And, you know, the fact that they found something, you know, the fact that they still came back and bounced back and actually made adjustments, I think that's the big thing, you know. When you have a young side, I mean, I think you look at Jack Crowley, how he bounced back and how Wales bounced back. And yes, I mean, they, they did end up losing the game. But, you know, the way they bounced back, and I think the only thing that probably hurt them was the inexperience at the end there because, you know, in a more experienced side, finds ways to probably stop being as helter-skelter when you get back into the game, when it's a three-point game, they were still sort of treating it as if they were down by 15 points, even though they were down by three points, where they sort of need a little bit of composure. And yes, it, it is tough because the older players, you know, are, some of them are a little bit like at the back end of their careers, not at the level where they used to be. But I think for Catlin, he will be pleased. I think he will look back and go, okay, cool. At least one thing I do know about this, about this group that he has is they don't just fall away. They do find a way. They do adjust. They do listen. because whatever he said to them at halftime didn't work for two minutes and then worked for about 30 minutes. Um, uh, well, let's say 25 minutes. So at least that's something you'll take away from it. We, we, I mean, we did say, we did predict them to come, to, to come last in, in the Six Nations. So, but we thought the Wales would see during the Six Nations was the Wales we saw for the first 42 minutes. But at least we know there's a glimpse that there is at least something positive happening and it will be a learning curve. And, and unfortunately for Wales, you know, I do support a football side that is full of full of youngsters. It's going to be frustrating, uh, very. 
it's good. It's and but there'll be a lot of promising <laughs> moments as well. So, oh, you at the mo- is this your moment to take to take some frustration out there, cooks? Yes, through Wales. What I'm what I'm saying to Wales, I'm saying to Chelsea Football Club. That's what the, I was just being to myself in the mirror <laughs> right now, and not wanting to down the bottle brandy that I'm, that's in the cupboard. Um, <laughs> but I, I, it is going to be frustrating. But at least they can console themselves the fact that there is something there where they are willing to fight back and they just didn't roll over. So not to treat them like a under 15A, small 15A team that's trying to find the way, but they are a young side. So I think there's there's still a lot to be positive about. Okay, let's move to the final game of the weekend, which was, well, the final game we're discussing at least, which is England versus Italy. So England wins that game. Um, the scoreline was a bit helped by you know the late Montiani try, but England wins twenty seven points to twenty four. End of the first half, Italy was winning and winning quite well, and even at the end, Italy scored more tries than England. But in the second half, I think England did pretty well, you know, with uh, defensively and putting pressure on Italy, making them um, forcing them into mistakes. And it's interesting, Sean. Like I think England's essentially it's a new cycle for them never mind world cup cycles just a new cycle yes Borthwick has been there for a year but he was sort of doing a bit of a, a rescue job there but it's a new it's new coaching staff obviously with the likes of felix jones and andrew muirhead being added there it's new players five debutants is the most debutants they've had in a team since 2012 i mean yeah there's so many new things obviously the likes of Farrell and laws aren't playing there anymore and yeah, again, it's one of those situations where even with the Wales, where I felt like people were being a bit too negative, with England as well, I'm like, I don't really know what you guys expect more than, you know, a few rough patches and some good things to take away. At least you beat Italy, who are not bad. Um, they're much better than they were in the World Cup. And there were some good things that you can take home with, with this um, result. Yes, and there's also, I think, the one major fixing point for England is to have a massive ball carrying 12. That for me was the only missing link, whether it's Tuilagi or it's Lawrence. I prefer Lawrence at 13, but they need a big straightening midfielder. Um, but I thought, I thought the way England came back under like you could see clearly that there was a change in their defensive setup or how they were executing it in the second half with the amount of debutants and inexperience that they had. And they were led pretty well by the experienced players. I thought Maro Toje hold, held the England side together almost the whole game. So they did. I mean, if you think about the inexperience in that match day 23 to come back against a side like Italy who are playing that way, I thought was impressive. Probably the only reason why they were able to get over it and mentally beat them was because it was Italy with respect to them. I think sides still see that as getting getting five points out of that game and, and focusing heavily on it. If it was any other side, they, they probably would have thought they're in the shit. So, yeah, it's there will be changes coming, but uh, uh, one thing that um, Borthwick is doing is 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 growing his foundation of experienced players, which is essentially what Rossi Rasmus did and, and how him and Jacques Ninaba set up the Springboks by being able to pull uh, 40, 50 players that have like 10-ish caps or just a little bit under. So they're not completely green when they come into the mix. So I'm interested to see how things go moving forward for England. 
Yeah, and I think it's also interesting, Cooks, just seeing the imprints of Felix Jones onto the game plan, the rush defense. Um, you saw maybe with that try that Allen um, took that <laughs> some of the, the disadvantages is that you need to sort out both the rush defense and the scramble defense that, defense that goes to the corner. We in South Africa, we know firsthand the Felix Jones slash Shaggy Noble defense and the, and, the, and, and the teething problems that it has because, you know, it's, it, it's so aggressive. And um, it, it, it's like, you know, when it started out, ironically, when we played England in 2018, we saw how the likes of Nkosi and Mapimpi were being called out at wide and sort of still back and forth their decision and because it's, it's such a different type of defense and such an aggressive type of defense where you look at the spring box now is not only has, not only has, the, um, has the defense become the rush, they, it's also so detailed in how we rush and plus the scramble. So I think England, it's, I, I saw the, 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 the Allen try and I was like, oh, this won't happen in, two, in a year or possibly two years' time. This, they'll yeah, fix these issues. It's it's not um it's not it's it's not something that's a train smash. But it's it's like you said with the rush defenses. You are you are giving out a big chunk of space out wide, but you're forcing teams to like you. You're almost dangling the carrot there. But what's made the diff the difference in the Springboks is we we become extremely good at scrambling. I think that's where England. That's the next evolution of the defense. But um, so I mean I've sort of quite a few articles. I think people mention England's defense. I'm like. I'm telling English fans now, it's 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 still gonna be frustrating. There are gonna be teething problems, but you know, you look at someone like Freeman, he does feel like fit the mold of how they want to defend in, in, in sort of that shape. I thought he was fantastic on the weekend. So for England, just buckle up, don't panic. There's, there will be certain you will be sometimes concede the trial of the seasons because teams find space out wide. Don't panic. It's gonna be it's gonna it's going to be fun. And once you get that scramble right, I can't wait for England to play the Springboks soon where, where it becomes a battle of the scramble defense where you see like flipping 20 line breaks a game. But just, just amazing scramble defense. So, so I think with England, especially defensively, like it's going to come right. I mean, tell like you, we know it firsthand. Yeah. And Cooks, so talk about um, the impact that Ethan Roots, I mean, he was man of the match. He was your player of the weekend. Like, yeah, why Why was he so good? And what does he bring to England now that they don't have Courtney Laws? A different type of uh, blindside flanker than that. Obviously, Courtney Laws, you know, the, the absolute man mountain work rate. Incredible hits he puts. I think with Ethan Roots, they've got, they got, they got, they got this nice big ball carrier and just so direct. And just, I thought the way he carried and just gave England a sort of, different type of element, a different type of oomph and, and, and something that, that they've needed. I know you, you're never going to replace a Courtney Laws. And um, so I thought they were, I thought they were fantastic. I thought he was fantastic on debut as well um, against a good loose trio. I mean, in Negri, Hanun and um, Lamar, that's a good loose trio he's going up against. They're, they're on slouches. So for him to have sort of made a step up on debut, it just gives something England probably hasn't had for a while, especially in the loose. I know, I mean, Courtney Laws is a good ball carrier, but, you won't say that is probably the the standout mark of his game as compared to Roots, how direct he is. And, you know, for me, with the way world rugby is going now, it's weird how number four apply inside flank and number, a big number 12. If you almost don't have that, you're not going to compete. Those positions, I mean, yes, I mean, minus 10 and all that, obviously those are key, but the best teams in the world have a good number four. Have a good have a good blind side flanker, have a good big, big ball carrying twelve. And England, hopefully, they've solved the one issue at, at flank with the roots. I mean, he looked fantastic. Obviously, 
it's going to be interesting to see if he can keep it going. But um, yeah, I mean, they if if that's how you're going to make your debut and replace an England legend, Courtney Laws, I mean, that's a great way to start. Yeah, and that um, Chandler Cunningham South player, he looks pretty good himself. Jeez, like he's the answer. England... I'm telling you now, Ooh, what he's do you the think? answer. Yeah. What do you think of him? Oh, I'm a massive fan. I think I said in the last podcast, um, he's mm. he's going to be the reason why Courtney Laws' retirement will not be felt so bad. I really feel that he he's got the goods. And then you just put in a bit of George Martin into the pot as well. Like England has some really good stock there in, in that number six shirt. Sure, let's talk about Italy. I mean, yeah. So they have their first game um, under Gonzalo Casada. It had some good things. I think they were, unlike most of their games against England, where they seem to not even compete for 10, 20 minutes, they were in the game for about 50, 60 minutes. So there was a lot good there. But yeah, obviously errors, maybe just not having the same sort of bench that England had, making more tackles than England had to make. That's what the negative was. Are you feeling largely positive? Do you think there's a pathway for England, I mean, for Italy to now get into that England, Wales, maybe Scotland, like uh, part of the world rankings? I am bummed for Italy. They deserve more out of this game, but... Well, it's been a year or a year or but we've been we've been saying they're they're close. They're close to doing it. And this game, if they won this game, their their whole six nations would have changed. Um the one thing I do believe is they've got they they've definitely got the mental fortitude to to push on. Um they didn't they didn't crumble too badly. That England came back at them well and they've got the players. Their their backline is deadly. Um their backline is really, really, really good. They've got a couple of players that can move around as well. And their forwards and Cooks, as you mentioned, their loose chairs, like top class. So they've got it. They, they just need the cards to, to fall in their favor every now and then. Um, what they've got to do is probably, the thing is, <clears throat> you only really believe once you, once you see the results or once you have a history of getting the results. So that's the scary thing for everyone else is once Italy start believing, because they believe they have got so much faith in what they're doing right now. They've got that belief, but it's the, the moments that matter when they lose it. Sometimes you, you feel, okay, are they going to crumble or, or something? You know, they get to a point where there's a 50-50 and it doesn't really go their way. When it starts going their way and when they start tightening up in the other spaces, they, they really, they're going to cause chaos. And the truth is, is they're not a side that, you are guaranteed five points or a win out of anymore. Um, they've got a couple of youngsters coming through. They probably need to work on their on their their front row. I like get three decent front rows, which I think will be tough for them. But other than that, they they're pretty handy. Um, they they are going. I know we say it all the time, but they are going to upset someone. Um, Tyler, I think you picked them beating England. Um, and they're going to cause chaos. I don't know who they're playing this weekend. I've said that about eight times today, but Ireland. isn't it Wales? Ireland. Ah, interesting. Ireland could very well send, I don't know if they're going to stick in their World Cup form and just send full strength for the rest of their life, but they could send some <laughs> youngsters. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. Italy could learn a lot from a game against Ireland right now. I don't think it's a bad thing for them. Um, then I, I believe they play, they play France. So, and then finishing off with Scotland, Wales, or Wales, Scotland, whichever way around. But yeah. that's a great finish for them if they're not absolutely stuffed. So, yeah, 
I'm looking forward to watching them play. Um, they're they're in a good good space at the moment. Yeah, I wish they started with Scotland, like not unbe like not like France or Ireland good, but someone they could have a bit of a matchup against. Then had England later, maybe they could have gotten a win. But yeah, maybe England also would have improved by then. Mention first um, half Scotland yeah. and first half Italy playing each other. Hmm. That would be they, ridiculous. They would cook. Yeah. Look, and I mean, I know what you're saying about um two below two, but Menoncello also has that. I mean, we know he can play a little bit as a playmaker as well. He does have that like kick run pass ability himself. Like I really like him in the midfield. Yeah, he's good. I'm I'm gonna rewatch that game and definitely gonna keep a proper eye on that midfield because we've seen Bricks at twelve and Menoncello at thirteen. Swapping it around and to get these results is amazing. So they're going to be interchanging them too in the future in game and then obviously um, as as starting lineup. So it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, and apparently Seb Negri played a lot of that game um, with a broken rib, which is ridiculous. What? So he yes. yeah uh, he's now out for this um, weekend's game, but yeah he broke his rib apparently like in the first few minutes. And I'm struggling yeah, to cough I when I've broken a rib. I mean, imagine having to make a tackle. <laughs> imagine having the likes of Ethan Roots and Mario Toji in your face all the time because you're the number you're the number six blindside flag. It's your job to <laughs> basically beat people for a living. True story. Yeah. Cooks, I just want to go back to something you were saying about um, Tommy Freeman because he also had a really good game. I think him playing center actually helps him with the Bach Bok-like or Bok-light <laughs> rush defense um, pattern because obviously he has to go up as a 13 and make that read of going up or staying back. So it, I think that that helps him. Yeah, it's going to be interesting what they do like with the team in future, just finding those players that, that can fit around it. I love, I love Freddie Stewart. I think he's a really good player and I think his limitations are a bit exaggerated, but it's... It's a bit difficult for Freddie Stewart to ask him to do so the, those cover tackles and uh, like David Willemser does when Stewart isn't obviously as fast as Willemser. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's the that's gonna be the hard part for them to figure out is trying to get the which right personnel they can get to sort of play in that mold. You know, like like not to reference the Springboks again, but I always make this mention. I remember when Colby, for example, missed out on the World Cup semi final, and not, and it wasn't sort of Colby's attacking instinct we missed. It was, we missed him defensively. I remember Wales scored the trans Ngozi hit up. And then you're like, yeah, but you can tell the difference between someone who's been in that system week in, week out, and someone who's sort of just come out and someone who's built for that personnel. Like Pimpi, for example, he, whenever he steps in for the box, you never worry about him defensively because of how good he has been in that system. And he knows how to attack, where to attack it. And that's the, that's the big difference, I think, for England now is to find out the personnel and the right personnel to fit in there. and and Obviously, Freddie Stewart is a different type of role that he has to play, probably that he's never played before and sort of having mm -hmm. to make that many cover tackles. So it's going to take some adjustment, but he's, I just feel he's a good enough player to make that adjustment where, where it becomes positioning for someone like, someone like Vili LaRue is not known as the world's greatest tackler, but he tends to know where to be and how to cover those and make those cover tackles if it needs to be. Just don't put him out wide on the wing with the forward because you, you probably get sidestepped. But um, you, <laughs> but he tends not to miss those 1v1s and the guy breaks through. He always knows where to be. I think that's someone like Freddie Stewart can learn from. And just, just in terms of watching positioning, especially on, on defense when the teams make those line breaks and 
I think England obviously will learn too, and, and especially when the scramble comes. So it's going to be interesting to see how, because you, you could see like someone like Henry Slade as also slipped a few tackles early on. Also, again, it's a lot more pressure, a lot more demanding of you to sort of make those spot-up tackles. That's the big difference as well is England faces. If you're going to rush that hard, if you miss a tackle, it, you, you're pretty much screwed. You almost, the best way for that defense to work is actually if you do get beaten, is to get beaten out wide. And then, like you, if you look mm-hmm. at the Springboks, they hardly tend to get, to get cut up down the middle because as good as, as aggressive as that rush is, the detail and the tackles they make is always tend to be spot on. So I think that's where England is. the spot on tackling first up and then obviously the scramble that will come from the wingers and, and, and Freddie Stewart. That's the next de- uh, development from there. And, and it, it's hard. Like, it took the Springboks, what, two years to master that. Uh, but also you could see with England also that they're, they're also trying to bring in the attacking game almost at the same time as the defense game where the Springboks tended to just sort of focus more towards the, the, the defense side and sort of, you know, a little bit of individual brilliance. Uh, brilliance Vili Lurikens almost plays the second 10. It kind of feels like Henry Slade is playing that second 10 role that Vili played, but obviously from 13. So it's sort of a different type of attacking they're trying to figure out. And, and, and you, you, you know, Tyler, is attacking does, attack does take time. Defense is obviously easier to sort of to fix, but the way the rush defense is that, that probably takes as much time as an attack shape to put together because of how intricate and how detailed it is. Yeah, the nice thing about the England, uh, uh, the England run or like how the, how the Six Nations set out for them is it almost goes from the easiest game to the hardest game. You know, if you maybe if you just switch the Ireland France game at the end, so it starts with Italy. You then have Wales at home. Uh, you then have Scotland away. Then it's Ireland at Twickenham. Then it's France um, in Lyon. So it's a nice tester for the rush defense. Like, obviously, you're punished by Italy, but not as much as you would be punished by Scotland, for example. So it's going to be a nice growing pains for them to try and figure it out. And, yeah, it's going to be a a balance of giving players a try versus, you know, knowing when to put in a player as well. So, I mean, especially with all the injuries England have had, you know, you might as well just see what do you have in Fraser Dingwall? What do you have... Um, with um, Tommy Freeman and Ethan Roots and just see what they can bring. And then maybe, you know, after these first two games, you bring in Faye Waboso to, to start at the wing. You can bring in, uh, you know, Kangyam Sartu to, to be in the team. Like, it'll be interesting to see how England plays around with some of the combinations. I think the main thing is, like Sean said in number 12, Charlie Morgan, um, who's come to the show once or twice, he wrote about the fact that most of the minutes in the Premiership um, at 12 are not going to England um, qualified players. I think he said it's like 40% or something like that of minutes are being played by uh, England qualified rugby players at number 12. So it's clearly a shortage that they have. I, 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 I said this a few years ago. They should have tried to find or manufacture some sort of birth certificate for Andre Estesen to prove that he's English because that seemed like the only way they would get that big bruising number 12. And yeah, so if Ollie Lawrence is not available, it then becomes an issue. And then they still need a number eight. Like Benel's playing really well. I'd rather play him at seven or have, you know, you have a lot of options at seven with Earl, carry times two, Underhill. But yeah, they need a number eight just to put things together because they seem to have a lot of number sixes. They seem to have a lot of number sevens. Dombrant is a number eight option. You can you know, perhaps argue 
Um, obviously, Earl's playing there right now, and he's done a really good job there deputizing. But you do need that number eight just to give that, um, just to to bring things together. Because I think Earl could cause a lot of havoc if if you are trying to model yourselves as a sort of a Bok light thing. You can see Earl as that high energy player and someone that does like Siakolisi does go from <laughs> touchline corner to touchline corner to try and, and, and put in the cover tackle. So it's going to be interesting to see how England goes through this competition and how they navigate like some of the injuries that they have and how much an opportunity they give players. But yeah, it's going to be growing pains. You're going to see some <laughs> walk-in tries. I really am keen though, to see how they go against Ireland because you know, Ireland had to play a much different game against South Africa when with their with obviously South Africa's rash defense after six years. Does Ireland just look at this one being like, oh, this is still a little baby rush defense? Or maybe that's where England can 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 try to find ways to stop, you know, that multi-phase Irish attack that they that they're so good at. So it's gonna be such an interesting road to see how England grow and progress in this tournament. I think for them, like it's it, 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 I do worry. I, for them against a sort of an Ireland and a France because because also the defense is in is, is still having growing pains. A side like Ireland is not the side you want to play if your defense is still 50-50 and you're still sort of figuring things out because Ireland can can put you to sword very quickly. I think that but it'll be a good test for for England. I think it's gonna be something that they, they can learn from. But um yeah, but I just want to echo that point about England. It's Especially the twelve, the twelve, the twelve department. It's a hard one because Dingle is a good player, and it reminds me a lot of um, David Havilia, the Crusaders, and all. David, and then they sort of played David Havilia in, in, in the July Test, and then he, he looked the part until he comes up against a Damien Lindy or a Bandiaki, someone who's slightly bigger than him, and and you know, and, and just in terms of trying to create go forward ball, and you know that that seems to be the way to go. Most good teams do want a twelve that can give them big go forward ball, and. And Dingwall, it's 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 is is a good carrier, but not on the level of other twelves. I mean, obviously he's got good skills, but it's, it's but it's hard for England if there's just no Englishman playing twelve and your best centre in the tournament, Oli Lawrence, who is a who is a big stocky, big stocky. He's playing he's playing his best strike, probably the best strike he's ever played at thirteen, having someone that can put him into space. So that's the the adjustment that they have to make, but. And the, the funny thing is the, the Six Nations, it, it's, it's in a delicate balance as well. If you look at the competition as a whole, is there is quite a few young guys and a few young teams are still f- trying to figure things out. I think it does help for a team like Ireland that you, you do, you are coming with a good run, but you are still retaining the likes of Gibson Park, Omani. Um, you've, you've got the tough furlongs. You, you know, you, you've, got, you, you've got guys who are experienced campaigners around the youngsters, whereas England is, you've still got... For example, if Alex Mitchell at nine only played 12 tests, yes, you have George Ford, but Ding was still young. Slayers just come in, Freeman's come in. So, and the, the pack is also quite young and you still, so for them, it's, for England, it does feel like they're having to patch together so many key positions and still trying to, to groom. And because what happens when Farrell comes back, for example, um, in, in, in July, if he comes back or end of the year, it's another adjustment you got, that's another adjustment you got to make. Do you move, put him back to 12? And it almost feels like you want to sort of move past the Farrell 12 situation, but it's almost like rather than, like at least we know what he can do at 12 because there's no one else playing 12. So they're in an interesting spot. But again, tell us, like, we, remember last year we talked about England, like we always felt like there's a good side in there. On the weekend, I, I do still think I look at England, like the, the, there is something there. There is 
a glimpse. It's probably not as good as they were probably last year, but there is a glimpse in there where you think, okay, cool. I can see what both we can cook with here. I can see what he can put together, but it will take time. It won't be like an Eddie Jones job where he came in guns blazing and they won 17 straight off the bat. So I don't think it'll be that sort of job. I think it'll be a job that he, that both it's hoping to sort of start manifesting and start cooking some probably autumn's, autumn series end of next year. I think that's where we hope to start seeing some answers and then obviously build from there. Mm. Find some answers in New Zealand. Good luck. Um, <laughs> Cooks, just to start wrapping up on the Six Nations chat, I think the big question is, would you take Ireland to win the Grand Slam or are you backing the field to, try to, to stop them? I think I, 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 I do lean towards the Irish Grand Slam now. I thought France was probably the only obstacle they faced. I thought it would be put us sort of similar to last season's um, Six Nations where sort of Ireland did the Grand Slam and France came second by losing one game and Ireland the year before that. So I do kind of back them to get the Grand Slam. I do think Ireland feel they can go anywhere and still get the win. I do think Ireland's probably a level up. The, they're just slightly better than France at the moment and then quite a, a level above the other teams. So I think it will take a monumental effort from the other teams to to knock off Ireland, especially when, when Ireland go back home. But I mean, Ireland do have some big, big tests away from home, you know, England and Twickenham, uh, Scotland and Murrayfield. So if England and, England and Scotland, for example, if they want to knock off Ireland, they have the chance to do it because at least they're playing at home. But I mean, we thought the same with the French and look what happened on Friday night. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm leaning towards an Irish Grand Slam. What about you? Are you back in the field? Yeah, actually they're facing Scotland at home and Scotland have a terrible record in Dublin. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you can take that how you, how you want to. And, you know, we saw last year with the, with the group stage game, the world cup, they talked a big game and then got absolutely smashed. Yeah. It's, 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 I can't see it. It's almost, you know, with the other teams, I mean, apart from Scotland with England, Wales and Ireland, they all at some sort of restart stage. So you can't really back them to beat Ireland right now. They just, and it's just way too good. With Scotland, I, I back Scotland more to beat France than Ireland. They just don't know how to beat Ireland. Ireland are also just really good at slowing down Scottish ball and not really giving Finn the platform to do Finn Russell things. So if you take that away from Scotland, if you take away the quick rack ball, if you don't really give them the momentum of, you know, they you know, like we said, they don't have that many like ball carriers. So if he stops their fancy schmancy backline moves and really cut them from source, then they start trying to go crazy and then they start conceding 17 penalties in a row. So, yeah, especially if it's in Dublin, I think that's that, that should be the Irish win. But that could be the final game. And going into predictions now, Scotland have a very, very good chance of, you know, making a run for, for the Grand Slam themselves. They've got France at home this weekend, then England at home the next weekend, then Italy and then Ireland at the final game. So let's start making a few predictions for the weekend. Scotland versus France. It's the battle of which coaching team litter rocket under their players on Monday more between France and obviously that the performance they had in, 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 in Marseille and Scotland and their second half performance. Books, I know, I think you've, you've, you've showed your hand that you'd, probably predict a Scotland win. So what's the case for that? 
I definitely know that Francis's file is going to be lit up more. I've seen Sean Edwards on full contact in a <laughs> in a in a video <laughs> session, so they'll definitely and 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 will be a man of few words, probably terms of fucking around, done and dusted. So I think with Scotland is the case, the big case for them is the fact they're home. They've come close a few times against France and sort of fallen away at the end. I do think for France, I mean for Scotland is just the gal- the galvanizing fact that if they do, and the way they're spoken about is winning the Six Nations, do that, they have to knock off France before this break. Get that monkey off your back and, and go, listen, if you can knock off France, some, a team that we've come close to recent times and just found ways to lose, even in, even in Scotland's gone down to 14 men, they've managed to keep those games close by just making silly mistakes. So I do think that, you know, for Scotland, if there's ever a time you want to play France, it's now. But I think the big worry for Scotland is France won't be, I can't see France being that poor two weeks in a row. So I think Scotland, mm. for them to win that game, it's, it won't be, they need to have that performance they had for the first 42 minutes for at least 65 minutes. And they, and they might have to go down to the end because in order for Scotland to win, they're going to have to, for me, pull out an, all, an all-timer. You're not, you're not going to beat a side like France unless you're a side of the caliber of Ireland or the Springboks or potentially the All Blacks on th- at, 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 at third or fourth gear. And I think if Scotland's at third gear and France's at third gear, France wins every single time. So for Scotland, for them, it's, they have to put in an all-timer. They have, a, they have the break straight afterwards, so they can sort of throw everything at it. The, the, the Scottish crowd will be rampant on the weekend, and that, that's, that's for me is a big case for them. I know, Tyler, you're probably leaning towards France. Do you think they'll bounce back? Yeah, um, uh, look, I, sure. I'm, I'm also a bit worried. There's a few things with France. I'm worried about, you know, you don't, I mean, cooks, I think we've talked about this before with other teams and other situations. When a team just lets go of the rope, that's when it's very scary. And one thing, just talking about the Springboks, one thing they're really, really good at, except in Australia, except in that country. That, that <laughs> and and Wales from time to there. time. <laughs> and and in Wales, that they don't let go of the rope, especially in, in, under Rassi Rasmus. They always are in the fight. They always put themselves in positions. Even if they play crap, they put themselves in positions to try and win games. But France completely just lost hope there. And yeah, it's now just see. And there's a lot of noise from like um, French journalists about is this did the loss against South Africa really really like affect them deeply? I don't know. But we'll have to see on Saturday. There's a part of me that also is like, you know what, maybe if if there was like a deeper uh, like grief that they have after that loss in the, in the World Cup, then rip off the Band-Aid, do a New Zealand 2009 and just lose all your big games now. And that's what got Graham Henry and Hansen to then change approach, put two fullbacks in their back three, improve their kicking game, and not allow for you to prayer to end the career of another all black wing. So sometimes you need that run of losses to to now improve and to go on a run again. So there might be some positives, but I'm also just worried about that French, you know, the support and the crowd and stuff. Like, yo, we know how ruthless they are if 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 France is not playing well. So you don't I don't know if they can afford a loss really, but I think I'd rather in France loses and performs well and makes some improvements 
than them winning and it's still some of the same problems that we saw now. Like you said, if they were, if they win because Scotland wasn't geared to and they weren't geared to, then it's not really worth it, to be honest. Like, this is the Six Nations to either to see what the what the terminal problems are and what are the things that Galtier has to just try and focus to fix and try and find the players that can fix those those certain holes. So, yeah, maybe it's good for France in the long term if they lose on Saturday, but yeah, it's going to... It's going to hurt a lot if they do. But the case for France is quite simple. The, Scotland's tight five are just not at the same level as France. I mean, Scotland's tight five was kind of battling against, you know, people that don't even really start for the clubs in the Wales front three. And France will at least have, you know, Winnie Antonio, Cyril Bay, um, Reda Wardy is out, but they have someone like Danny Priso coming into the squad. So he's good. Um, like Lyot is, is, is good for racing as well. Like they, Possibly we'll have Miafu coming back on, on in the weekend. Um, they'll have to do something to fix the locks. Hopefully, I, I assume Waki will start, maybe with um, um, Gabra Leaks. So that's still a tight five that, that I think matches Scotland relatively easily. Um, and as long as France can just keep the dumb crap to a minimum. The only reason or mo- the biggest reason why they always seem to have these shootouts with Scotland is they try to they 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 get sucked in by Scotland and try to also outrun them and outflay them and then that's when it becomes like a a a, a, a you know a, a bit of a basketball game so France should really play boring kick long roll rolling more pick up and drives the whole time attacking as narrow as possible suck everyone in and then you can do you know go wide and like what Jalibet did to put Damien Pinot away in that um that first um try they scored against Ireland don't try to be fancy please but yeah it's it i think this could be a nice tipping point and somewhere something we can refer to back refer back to in a few years if France loses it's then the question of okay is all of this development that's happening in their top 14 and their junior structures is it for real because now's the test now it's like okay can the French public and the media and the coaching staff and the players still believe in this project, even if it's coming under a lot of fire and maybe there's some things that they need to adjust. So yeah, I, it should be France, but there is a part of me, even like, I'm, yeah, I love France, but there is a part of me that kind of wants to see the chaos of what happens if Scotland does win. I agree with you because this is probably the, the biggest test they've faced in this Galtier era coming from the World the quarterfinal mm. loss, DuPont not being there. Now you get smacked by Ireland first game of the new year and then now potentially lose to Scotland and we know the French aren't the most uh, calm nation when it comes to when they, when they sort of when they sort of hit the dumps. But I think it's 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 one of those situations for France where actually cooler heads need to prevail. You know, it just could be it's a bit of a slump when there's just, you know, there's also injuries as well, you know, and, and that yeah. does play a factor. So I'm with you, Tala. It's it's gonna be interesting what happens to see if they lose, what their reaction will be. It doesn't help that they'll have a bye as well. So it'll be a week of chaos, an absolute chaos of what is happening here. Are we are we falling apart or uh, what changes do we need to make? So uh, I'd hate to be in the Galtier meetings on that Monday if they lose to Scotland or that week. That's because I'm, I'm de- he's definitely spending more time in the French Federation office than he's at practice. And the top 14 is going to be like, we're stopping this thing of giving away our players. Antoine, Roman, or at least Gregory, Damien, you guys are playing top 14 next week. 
<laughs> like, yeah. it's going to be that Adam Silver meme, like, you know, that says, get ready to learn Chinese. It's going to be, get ready to learn, having, um, like, Bayon, buddy. Like, yeah. those guys are going to go back to their clubs. No, 100%. Okay, next match is then England facing Wales at Twickenham, Saturday evening. Cooks, yeah, Wales was really good. I'll give them that, but I only see an England win here. Yeah, me too. I only see an England win. Um, I think it will be, it's got the makings of a very scrappy match as well. Two youngish sides trying to figure things out, but um, I just can't see, I think Wales using their momentum to go and win in Twickenham's a bridge too far. I think for them, it's, I think they'll give it everything they've got. But I, I do think this weekend, um, I, I just can't see anything but an England win. I think the only way Wales does it is I think they need to score early and put some scoreboard pressure on England, even though England did come back to win this game, to be fair to them. But... Yeah, I don't. I can't see it. I can't see England losing if they're the ones that get off to like a ten point or fifteen point start. Even though again, Wales was the one that almost came back from twenty seven all down. Like both of the teams don't. Yeah, you can't give head starts to these two teams. It's we know we've seen England Wales about twenty times last year. Cooks. We know it's tense. We know it's pretty scrappy. We know it's pretty crappy rugby to be honest. Um, so it's all about just nerve at the end of, at the end of the day. <laughs> You're asking a team full of twenty years, twenty 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 year old and twenty one year olds have nerve. <laughs> <It's good. laughs> <laughs> you're asking you're asking for like very recipe for disaster. I mean, I think Gatlin might just tell them also just go full kamikaze mode. Whatever you do with those twenty five minutes in the second half, just just do that. Give the ball to Wainwright and just cause havoc from there. <laughs> in the final game, Ireland versus Italy. Yeah, look, yeah, I mean, it's very tough to see Italy winning this. Ireland, I, I think, quick, the question for Ireland is, is it a game to try and, to try a few things? I mean, Farrell's been quite consistent and he doesn't really do the whole experimentation thing. So I think at best, if I'm an, if I'm an, uh, an Irish fan, I may be hoping for a Nick Timoney cap. I may be hoping for Kieran Frawley to come off the bench maybe one or two of like those sort of inexperienced players, but I can't see it being a second team. And I also don't think, I think Italy could probably beat an Irish, like if Iron makes like a lot of changes. Yeah. And I think also tell it, it's a second game in the competition going into a bye. So mm -hmm. you can sort of do give the, almost that same side another run. And I think for Andy Farrell, I think you'll be hoping that they sort of get a nice lead at about 60 minutes where you can. So I think the, I think the, where the changes will come will be at the bench. You might see, if, like I said, a Nick Timoney mm. or something like that coming off. And he'll be hoping that he can give someone like a Kieran. I wouldn't be surprised. Someone like a Kieran Frawley, for example, it, it wouldn't surprise me to see him coming on like the 50th minute, even if it is a reasonably close game. You know, if there's, you know, like, if there's ever a time to throw someone into the fire, it, it could be against an, an Italy. You know, you know, I think the, the certain size of all blacks used to love giving their debutants, you coming on 30 minutes to go close at the game, you're playing the Springboks Ellis Park, out of Lumen Sipawanga, good luck to see how you're going to close this game out. But, um, so I think with Ireland, I think the changes will probably come off the bench, on the bench, and then they'll be hoping to sort of get a decent lead. But I think someone like Jack Crowley, I feel has to play all five tests, start all five, um, mm. get the combination going. There's a few combinations going. 
maybe he might miss up the centers, might see McCloskey coming in, Bandiaki getting off. Like that is, is a sort of starter that I can see a sort of someone, someone like a McCloskey, someone who's been in around the system already knows what to, what is going on. So he might get a start. But besides that, like, or maybe racing in Omani, uh, guys, guys who have been in the mix, but I think a bulk of that side will probably, uh, a bulk of that side will probably start. And I think they, they should, they should get another bonus point win. Yeah. Finally, Cooks, I had a prediction uh, before the weekend started that all the Six Nation teams are going to do a 6-2 split. Do you think that's going to happen? No, I think, I think one... Uh, no, uh, I think Italy could go 5-3 to sort of try... You know, I think teams, sometimes the island, they fall in the trap of wanting to sort of play a bit too much rugby. I think Italy might fall in that trap. I think they might go 5-3. I wouldn't be surprised to see Ireland going 5-3 as well. Um, throwing mm-hmm. extra back in there. I think France is definitely going 6-2. They're, they're going to try to bully Scotland. And, and Scotland as well also, also wouldn't be surprised to see them going 6-2. I think England will go 5-3 and Wales potentially 5-3 as well. So I think only I think the only 6-2 we might see, my prediction, is between Scotland and France. Okay. So let's end it there. It's a good um, review and preview of the Six Nations. We've also got a nice little treat um, coming this week. We're going to be talking to the great Francisco Isaac about the Rugby Europe Championship. There's been a few surprises there, like European rugby is drunk at the moment. You have um, Belgium beating Portugal, um, 10 points to six, which I think hasn't happened in a long time. The Netherlands almost beat Spain as well. Georgia, like they didn't really, you know, they usually beat Germany by about 50 points. They only beat them by 11. So there's a lot to, to catch up on and some education about what's happening in the second tier of, of European rugby. Um, we might, yeah, we might see the Springboks invite Belgium over instead of Portugal if if the if the results continue like that. But yeah, Francisco Isaac will be um, coming onto the pod as well. But you guys know the drill. Please like and share um, this podcast and 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 subscribe to it. Please give it a five star rating or whatever you can to just make sure that we go up those charts on 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 on, on the podcast platforms and and follow us on 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 whatever your social media platform of choice is. Um, for all the latest rugby news and and rugby and rugby takes as well and we will see you in the next part thank you so much have a lovely rest of the week cheers guys <laughs>